Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome back Dr. High. Dr. Whitney High is an associate professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. He is a graduate of the Mayo uh, Clinic School of Medication, Medicine. Pardon me. <laughs> he completed residency in dermatology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and he completed a fellowship in dermatopathology at the University of Colorado. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Dermatology and the American Board of Pathology. Dr. High has authored over 70 articles, 20 chapters, and three books in dermatology and dermatopathology. Dr. High was promoted to associate professor after just three years on staff. His laboratory was first in the world to identify gadolinium in the tissue of patients with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. He serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, Dermatitis, and the Journal of Cutaneous Pathology. Dr. High also holds advanced degrees in chemical engineering and law. Please welcome me, help, join me in welcoming Dr. High. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. So uh, I'm going to speak on, uh, it's called the Infectious Disease, uh, disease or Infectious Dermatology Update. And uh, when I got that title back from the, uh, the organizers, I, I stressed the word update. So it was tempting to just kind of run through all of infectious disease, like I write the chapters on infectious disease in a couple general germ texts. And it's tempting to just kind of start at the beginning and end at the end, but that's not really an update. That's not really what's new and going on. In, in, in infectious dermatology. So instead, I decided to just pick some things that are in the news or important lately or there's been some type of medication or discovery that would, would maybe alter your care. But this is certainly not an encyclopedic uh, coverage uh, of infectious disease from, from, from A to Z or anything of that nature. So yeah, I, I did uh, I do tropical uh, medican, medicines, now I'm doing it, tropical uh, medicine certification uh, in Peru, and I, I spent about five and a half months, almost six months in Peru, and I worked at uh, the hospital uh, there. This is the company car right there. It's pretty slick. Um, and uh, they, they, in Peru, they divide all their hospitals into different subject categories, like there's a, a women's and children's hospital, or there's an oncology hospital, and there's an infectious disease hospital. And so I worked there, and I got to see crazy, unusual uh, diseases that you would never see in this country. And so since that time, I've always maintained this interest in infectious dermatology, and it's in fact a, an area that I like a great deal. The first thing I was going to talk about is, as being new or different is, is condyloma. So uh, we see a lot of patients with condyloma at our institution, and I also am a uh, attending physician at an STD clinic in town, and we certainly see a lot of condylomas there. And I think um, often, sometimes in my general dermatology clinic, it's the end of the visit. I have a couple residents and maybe a couple medical students, and then the, the young woman or young gentleman says, oh, you know, there's one other thing, but I'd like to discuss it only with you. And uh, that's pretty much a good sign as to where we're going. But we do see a lot of condyloma in dermatology, and it's worth talking about. Uh, there are about 20 million people with, with condyloma in the United States, 6 million new cases per year, and up to 50% of, of sexually active adults, uh, basically half the population, manifests some evidence of HPV infection, general HPV infection. So uh, that, that means it's not really so much a disease as a status uh, of being in society a little bit, but uh, it's, it certainly is something that you need to know something about. There are about 40 different kinds 
uh, of condyloma that cause anogenital lesions, or HPV virus that cause anogenital lesions. And that's important because we only have tests. If you're ordering those high-risk, low-risk subtypes, we only have tests for about four high-risk and four low-risk subtypes, and yet there's 40 or so that can cause disease. So a negative result on that test is not necessarily indicative of, a, of the fact that the patient doesn't have condyloma. He just doesn't have a condyloma that you can test for. But that said, uh, about 90% of all condyloma are caused by HPV 6 and 11, and certainly HPV 16 and 18 are the kind that we're more concerned about as being a harbinger of, of people that might go on to have an increased risk for cervical cancer. Um, certainly, we all know what condyloma look like. I wouldn't bore you with that, but you can, you can see what they look like in men and, and women both. These lesions have been acetylwhitened, meaning that we took vinegar and, and vinegar soaks and put them on the skin to make the lesions appear more white and more visible, but they're just common condyloma uh, in men and women. Certainly since I was a resident 10, 12 years, 12 years ago, I guess, uh, we, we've, we've been using Aldera for condyloma, and it was one of the first things we had beyond a destructive modality. Certainly you can freeze condylomas, you can burn them off with TCA, you can burn them off with podophyllin or uh, condylox if you want to send the pa patient home with that. You can burn them off with a laser even. Um, but uh, Miquimod was one of the first things we had uh, that we could use uh, topically at home. And originally it was a three time a week for 16 week medication. But about 83% of people improved within the first four weeks. And in fact, if they haven't improved by the first four weeks, it's kind of a sign that maybe it isn't going to work. But again, the original indication for 5% of Miquimod was TIW times 16 weeks. It was associated sometimes with erythema, sometimes with irritation or burning or pruritus, uh, but it's generally a pretty well-tolerated medicine. Oh no, not this again. You've got to be kidding me. Is the computer guy around? Wow, that's unfortunate. All right, well, we'll just continue on. I, I, can't, I almost can't believe that. Um, more recently, you guys all probably know that Zyclera is now available. Zyclera is at 3.75% instead of 5%. The reason this is kind of an important thing, I hope I'm not doing that, uh, the reason that this is kind of an important thing is they sought approval for QD times eight weeks. So it's half as long, but it's every day. And, and that might be a useful thing if you really like to use medications as they're indicated and don't like to go off on creative tangents and things like that. Then this is a big advancement because now you have something that's half the duration and much easier to remember. You know, the people, patients often have trouble with, well, did I do it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Or did I do it Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday? And, and this is just somewhat easier in that regard that they can do it every day uh, for eight weeks instead of three times a week for, for uh, 16 weeks. It might seem like they have a little bit worse uh, clearance. The complete clearance was around 50% for 5% Aldera, but there are so many differences in the way the study was done, most people think that they're not really very comparable. There might have been a, an improved response in women, which was kind of an unusual observation, not a real clear explanation for that. And the other thing is that the lower formulation might have actually had less paritis and less burning. So shorter course, perhaps an easier way to remember the medication, uh, less paritis, less burning, um, and probably near the same efficacy, all, all things considered, all the differences in uh, methodology and things of that nature. One thing to be aware of that's also new is like in the last few years, particularly in the last couple years since 2011, 
2010, there's been several reports of people developing bleaching of the penis after using amiquamod. And in fact, you can see here that the title is, is you know, skin bleaching after 5% amiquamod. So it's something to be aware of. Um, uh, certainly, uh, there, there are um, uh, vitiligo-like cases, cases that are just thought to be coincidental vitiligo, but also vitiligo-like bleaching of the penis. And, and uh, while only 12 or so reports have been uh, occurred in the literature, about 70 reports have been reported to the, to the FDA, whether all those have been verified or not. But it's probably something we kind of modified our, our uh, consent form and our counseling a little bit uh, once these reports started to accumulate to make sure that people understand that that's uh, a concern. So that might be something that you also want to inform your patients because some people would be very concerned, um, particularly if they're, they're very worried about the, uh, what's going on down there anyway, and now they have a second problem that may throw them for a loop. Another drug that's relatively new for HPV is this Senecatechins, which is a, a green tea-derived 15% ointment. And, and so it's derived from green tea. It's, it's, it's very natural in comparison to a synthetic chemical or something like that. Uh, it is FDA-approved, so this isn't an off-label use or anything like that. Uh, they looked at, at uh, 600 patients for 16 weeks. 16 weeks is the same duration as the 5% of Miquimod. And they had about 50%, about the same number of people uh, show uh, marked improvement. But interestingly, their placebo effect is rather high. They had about 35% of patients improve with placebo, um, which is, means they must have a heck of a vehicle in addition to having the, the uh, green tea as well. The only other thing is it's a three-time-a-day medicine. Um, to me, three times a day uh, in the genital area is kind of an interesting proposition at work and, and uh, everything else. So that might be the only other thing to consider is, is do you really want to prescribe a three-time-a-day medication for use in the genital area? But uh, it does have a, a fairly comparable profile to the other agents that we've, we've talked about, and it is for patients that are very, very focused on natural, it is derived from green tea extract. Um, that brings up the possibility of prevention. Uh, the, we have two vaccines now for HPV uh, uh, subtypes. We have Gardasil, which is a quadrivalent vaccine. So it's 6 and 11. Again, 90% of genital warts are caused by 6 and 11. And then it's 16 and 18, which are the two most common strains that we associate with cervical cancer. Um, the only thing about Gardasil is it has a, aluminum in it. It has 225 micrograms of aluminum in it. And, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but that's the main difference, uh, or one of the two main differences from Cervarix. Cervarix is the other vaccine that's much more common in Europe, but less common here in the United States. It's a bivalent vaccine, only has two uh, different uh, uh, subtypes, 16 and 18. It doesn't cover against common genital warts. It's designed to prevent cervical cancer. It has a proprietary adjuvant, so it's not aluminum, it's a secret formulation. And that proprietary adjuvant is supposedly very, very strong and may induce a, a kind of a greater immune response or a more long-lasting immune response. Uh, certainly, we haven't had those vaccines long enough to know if that's the case, but there's interest in the fact that perhaps this provides a longer-lasting or stronger immune response uh, than does Gardasil. But there's no evidence to suggest that. It's just, it's just suggested that it might be the case. There's been a lot of debate uh, as to whether um, boys should uh, receive the HPV vaccine. You can see this is a really good journal, the BMJ, the excellent journal. Uh, fairly recently, they were still debating it, whether it was useful or just an unnecessary expense. 
Well, uh, just a few months ago, just so that you're in the know, the American Academy of Pediatrics Immunization Panel uh, decided to go ahead and recommend that boys and girls both uh, be vaccine, uh, vaccinated. So it's now uh, an American recommendation for boys and girls to be, be vaccinated. We certainly live in a country where that's a, a, a more realistic financial possibility than some other places in the United States, but, or some, some other places in the world, but it's something to be aware of. The only other thing, what did I say Gardasil has in it that some people might find uh, offensive or concerning? It has 225 micrograms of aluminum. And some people are very wary of aluminum. You'll have patients in your practice that read about aluminum and breast cancer or aluminum of, and Alzheimer's disease. And certainly there are a few people that are very wary of aluminum and there might be some, um, some validity to that, although it's not borne out uh, immutably in studies or anything like that. But what does happen from time to time is that we get reports of people who develop um, some type of granuloma at the vac vaccination site. They have a bump or a papule at the vaccination site. And you do a biopsy and you see this granulomatous process within the dermis, meaning this, this inflammatory engendered process within the dermis. And you also see a lot of eosinophils, the bright red cells. Eosinophils are an allergic type of cell. They come in when something foreign is present, like, like an infection or a foreign material of some kind. They're an, an allergy type cell. And so what we studied this, we were one of the first people to study this, and it actually turns out that under my electron microscope at my chemistry lab, we can actually find aluminum uh, in those areas. So the aluminum in some people does appear to cause this granulomatous process. Do, do I think it's necessarily dangerous or necessarily a bad thing? No, no, I probably don't, and there's other good reasons to have the vaccination, but just be aware that some people are gonna pick up on this in the literature and, and already be kind of uh, bent towards the naturopathic viewpoint, and they're going to be very, very concerned about these kinds of things. What I'm appreciating more and more is that HPV pops up in unexpected places. Uh, this is a woman who was told for about 20 years that she had unusual psoriasis or dermatitis of her hand, and she came and saw me, and this is the plaque that she had on her hand, and you can see that it doesn't really look much like psoriasis or dermatitis, yet she'd been reassured and treated by all these dermatologists and hand surgeons. Um, but, but to me, that looks like Bowen's disease at least, if not something worse. Squamous cell carcinoma in situ, if not something worse. And so we went ahead and, and biopsied it, and sure enough, it has kind of an appearance of squamous cell carcinoma in situ, uh, but it does have an appearance of a special variant of squamous cell carcinoma in situ, bonoid papulosis, which is HPV-related squamous cell carcinoma in situ. So we went ahead and stained it with our HPV markers, and this is an HPV high-risk marker. You can see that it is positive for high-risk subtypes, so that would be 16, 18, 31, 33 uh, subtypes. And, and so this person basically, going back to her photo, she basically has a giant malignant HPV infection of her hand. And then going back to her clinical photograph, you can see this woman's only 53 or 51, as I recall. Uh, she's fairly active uh, in otherwise fairly good health, and she has a giant squamous cell carcinoma in situ of her hand that's been mismanaged by all my friends in Denver, basically. And if I want them to maintain my fr uh, friendship with me, I have to be careful about how I handle this situation next, because you can imagine to cut this out 
with, uh, with stitches and graft and things like that would be fairly debilitating. The patient would have a graft of considerable size and their, their, their hand would never operate or, or hold up uh, in the same way in work, in work and living uh, that, that it does now. The graft would be very, very fragile. Uh, it would be a very, very big undertaking. So we thought long and hard about how to handle this and uh, I, I did a lot of research in the literature and I came across some people who had published um, using a triple therapy of tazeratine, 5-fluorouracil, and amiquimod all at the same time, all at the same time. So they would use uh, tazeratine in the morning, she would use 5-FU around uh, uh, the, the early evening, and then before bed she would put on amiquimod and she would even occlude at night. Well, th this treatment is really kind of against the Geneva Convention. It, it's pretty horrible. Um, uh, they, they, uh, uh, between this point and this point, which is basically essentially resolution without any surgical intervention, um, she basically had what looked like, you know, like a skeleton hand for a while with all the skin denuded off it. And it was, it was pretty scary. I contacted uh, uh, another speaker, or at least I think he's a speaker here. I saw him the other day, Dr. Rosen at, at Baylor, and got his assistance and input on the matter because it's a disconcerting thing. Now, since then, I've done it three or four times, and I'm no longer uh, scared of it, just like, like uh, you would expect. But it, 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 it was very handy in this case because this case was all baited with all kinds of medical legal aspects to it. Uh, and, and the woman ended up with an outstanding result, outstanding, outstanding result of a very, very difficult problem. So it's something to think about, and it's published uh, uh, both by Dr. Rosen and uh, other, other people, and I, I can honestly vouch that it, it, it was a lifesaver in this case. Talking about herpes, uh, you know, uh, is herpes is the gift that keeps on giving. It would probably take a lot more than this cake uh, to explain herpes to anybody I know, but. Uh, herpes is a, a worldwide thing. Uh, it comes in two forms, HSV1, which is generally just the non-sexual um, uh, mucosal, oral mucosal lesions, and HSV2, which is generally the genital uh, variants. But certainly there's overlap between those two forms, and one might imagine how that could be the case. Um, and uh, the HSV, like I said, is the gift that keeps on giving. Once you have HSV, it hangs out in your, in your dorsal root ganglia even after you, the lesion's clear and you get recrudescences, recurrences uh, of the process in the future. Um, it's a very, very ubiquitous disease. We spend enormous amounts of money on it, uh, and it does do other things like increase your risk of HIV infection if you have HSV infection already uh, as well. Uh, we know what oral herpes looks like. We know what genital herpes looks like. I'm not trying to bore you or anything like that. Um, diagnosis, you can do a biopsy and send it to me, and I can see the little cytopathic effect in the cells. If you know how to do a zinc, I was kind of the last generation. Our residents now don't even know how to do a zinc, but uh, you can do a zinc, and you can see these big swollen cells that tell you it's either HSV or VZV. They don't tell you which one, but they tell you it's one or the other. And uh, uh, you can certainly do other things. When I was a resident, we used to do culture. And we used to get this funny pink colored, excuse me, this funny pink colored media. It was like bright pink and it came with this special Dacron swab and you would swab it on the lesion, you would break it off inside this funny pink colored thing and you would send it off for culture. Well, culture takes a long time. Uh, it takes about a week for HSV, it takes about two weeks for varicella or VZV. And so over time, many of the major labs switched from culture to PCR. 
And in fact, Mayo Clinic was one of the, where I went to medical school, was one of the last places that still offered a viral culture. And, and just recently, they switched to all, uh, all PCR. So even if you think you're doing a culture, you're most likely, if you're going to a major reference laboratory, you're most likely doing PCR. PCR is faster, and you can obviously tell immediately if it's HSV1 or VZV. It, it, the, if you didn't even know that you were getting PCR now, and it's quite possible that you didn't, it's because you do all the collection in exactly the same way. You still use that funny pink-colored media. You still use that special swab that has Dacron instead of cotton. Everything's the same way, but it has uh, transformed how uh, the laboratory processes the tissue. This is kind of an interesting case. This is a 46-year-old man with HIV. He's HIV positive. He had this genital ulcer that had been enlarging for 12 months, and he failed six courses of acyclovir given by the infectious disease doctors at the Denver VA. And so he came to the, the Department of Dermatology in the Denver VA, where I happened to be there that day, and uh, um, they wanted to know, you know uh, what was going on. They had done a biopsy, not, not, not us. They had already done a biopsy and they had sent it off to the AFIP, and the AFIP had told them that they were concerned about a penis lymphoma. And so, you know, I thought about it, and I thought, well, gosh, that'd be interesting if it was a penis lymphoma. It would be probably my first penis lymphoma ever in the course of my practice. Um, but I was a little bit alarmed by the fact that he's HIV positive, and so I recalled some important advice that I'll tell you guys right now. There are only two populations of people that they get, H, uh, they get acyclovir resistant herpes with any frequency. And it's HIV positive patients and bone marrow transplant patients. Um, general population, very, very exquisitely rare to have acyclovir resistant herpes. But those two populations, HIV positive patients and bone marrow transplant patients, very, very common. So I was already kind of suspicious as the resident was telling me this story. I was looking at him sort of doubtingly, wondering what was going on here. And then I recalled also, I said, I said uh, you know, resident, uh, uh, I remember his name, but I won't embarrass him, but I said, resident, uh, I think I've read articles where, uh, where, where herpes could be confused with lymphoma and leukemia. And in fact, I've seen cases, resident, at, at the University of Colorado where molluscum with a very, very inflammatory reaction, it was called Hodgkin's disease or, or something in a little child, and it turned out to only be molluscum with horrible, horrible uh, medical legal implications for the family and things like that. And so I said, let's, let's look at this a little bit closer. And so uh, we got the tissue uh, back from the AFIP, which is closed now anyway, but, uh, so I don't think I'm besmirching their reputation, but uh, we, we got the tissue back from them. And we looked at, at the tissue, and, and lo and behold, when we looked closely, we thought, well, what, what's that? You know, there is, there is something that looks like lymph, lymphocytes and lymphoma maybe, but what's this right here? And we looked a little closer yet, and, and then we did an, an HSV stain, which we now have an HSV immunohistochemical stain. And you can see that it's positive. Everything that's brown has HSV in it. Um, so so it, the patient did actually have uh, acyclovir-resistant uh, HSV. It wasn't that he, he had a penis lymphoma, he just had a very vigorous inflammatory infiltrate to his, his HSV and that led to the appearance of a lymphoma. So again, if, I, if you take just a couple pearls away, it would be two populations have acyclovir-resistant herpes, uh, HIV and, and, and bone marrow transplant, 
And occasionally, you'll want to keep in the back of your mind as just a small kernel or nugget. You'll want to think, didn't Dr. High one time say that lymphomas and leukemias or, or that the molluscum and, 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 and HSV could be mistaken for lymphomas and leukemias, particularly in little kids. Because we've seen that time and time again. In fact, we saw a major university in California call a kid uh, with Hodgkin's disease, and it actually turned out they just had uh, molluscum with a very vigorous inflammatory response. And you certainly don't want to treat molluscum with CHOP or anything like that. That's generally uh, poor form. So uh, that, that's an important thing to remember. So uh, the other things about HSV is you always get questions about, you know, I have a, a HSV and my partner doesn't. Is there anything we can do about that? And there's pretty good evidence now to suggest that if you use condoms and uh, prophylactic doses uh, of, of acyclovir-related compounds, uh, that that does uh, not markedly diminish the, the incidence. It cr drops it by about half the incidence of acquiring HSV in the partner who's HSV negative. Uh, so that's a question that I get on occasion, worth knowing. So HSV's partner, varicella zoster virus, varicella zoster virus is just another member of the herpes family, really. They're just both members of a larger herpes family infection. But it's the one that causes both chicken pox, if it's a primary infection, and shingles, if it's a secondary uh, recurrence, a recurrence of recrudescence. Um, it looks quite similar to HSV under a Zank prep or even under a H and E stain on my microscope. They're going to look exactly the same, um, but but certainly we we know to recognize chickenpox in children. Although now we're vaccinating so many children, we don't see chickenpox uh, the way we did. And the other thing is we, we know to recognize zoster in the elderly as that dermatomal painful eruption. Um, but sometimes you get a rash, and, and this is uncommon for dermatologists because their wait times are so long. But every once in a while you get an adult with chicken pox, and it's really hard to pick up on. Uh, this is one adult who has kind of a chicken pox type rash. It's more truncal than it is distal on the extremities, and it's vesicular. Um, but you, I get all kinds of crazy diagnoses from the uh, potential diagnoses from, from the clinicians when it's chicken pox in an adult. And uh, here's another example, very recent example from, from, from some of my clients in Colorado Springs who had a, a man who had this kind of unexplained rash, and, and the differential was all over the map. And it took us a little while to say, well, hold on, maybe even I, it took me a little while, and I'm looking at the histology to think, gosh, you know, this is an adult, but they actually have chicken pox. And now there's a stain. So we have a stain for HSV, and we have a stain for VZV. And I don't know how your histopathology labs run, but it, as long as I want to get something done stat, I can usually have a com case completely turned over in 24 hours. So even stains and everything, as long as I know that it's a stat case. So the fact that we have an immunostain for HSV and VZV means that it just basically becomes a very easy proposition to see if there's any evidence of either type of infection, almost as fast as PCR or anything else. In fact, probably a little bit faster if you have to FedEx your PCR specimen halfway across the country. We all know how to recognize uh, uh, zoster as a, you know, a ridiculous pattern. We certainly know that sometimes it can be purpuric or, or, or even mimic other illnesses. This is so purpuric from so much inflammation of the vessels that it almost looks like it's some type of pigmented bruise or, or something odd going on here, but it's just herpes. 
uh, the, or varicella. The, the one thing that you want to always be concerned about is anytime you have involvement of the V1 di distribution and probably the V2 distribution as well uh, of the trigeminal nerve, then you really need to worry about uh, ophthalmology consultation. That's a real medical legal minefield there because the people can have involvement of uh, things like the V1 distribution, a Hutchinson sign, involvement of the tip of the nose, and then they go on to develop a keratitis, a herpetic keratitis. So any involvement of zoster uh, in the, in the, in the uh, V1 or possibly the V2 distribution of the trigeminal nerve is a really uh, medical legal situation where you want to be you know, savvy and you want to seek ophthalmologic guidance pretty quickly um, because you can only see this with a slit lamp. You can't see it in, in, in any other way. Um, so, so, but the one thing that I would say again is now in the last few years, most laboratories have, most, most decent laboratories have HSV and VZV as immunohistochemical stains. And so I can do them very, very rapidly and at least get you on target. So that's a new thing. We don't have to do direct fluorescence uh, antibodies or anything, DFA antibodies or anything like that anymore. We can just do IHC, immunohistochemistry. Treatment, I'm not going to go over that too much. Uh, Zostavax, uh, Zostavax is kind of new. Uh, it's a live attenuated vaccine, and it's 14 times more potent than children's vaccine, but it's essentially the same vaccine. It's just 14 times stronger. Why did they develop it? Well, you know, a few people that have zoster go on to have post-herpetic neuralgia, and post-herpetic neuralgia is a condition where um, uh, you have pain that lasts. Does anybody know the definition just off the top of their head? It's pain that lasts more than one month after the resolution of lesions in the same dermatome. So that's post-herpetic neuralgia. And for some people, it's, it's somewhat severe and concerning. For other people, it's debilitating for months or years later. Uh, they still have this pain even after all the lesions have resolved. And so since that's so debilitating, uh, the, the vaccine makers make a big deal out of the fact that the, the real point of this vaccine is to reduce the incidence of post-herpetic neuralgia by decreasing the incidence of zoster. And, and the only objective that people make, I think this is a great vaccine if you're well healed, you have lots of money, so it's probably a great idea to go ahead and have it. But the only thing that I've ever seen made hay of is the fact that to, to prevent one single case of post-herpetic neuralgia, you have to treat almost 400 patients. So that means 400 times whatever the vaccine costs with, with the vaccine plus all its administrative costs and every, everything else. So let's call it like $400 or something like that. It'd be 400 times 400 to prevent a single case of post-herpetic neuralgia. Um, so that's the only objection that people have made. It's probably not a huge objection here in the United States where we just borrow more money from China every time we want to add a vaccine. Uh, to, to, to uh, our panel, but it is probably a bigger problem in, in other parts of the world where that, that would be a very big, big cost burden to society just to prevent one case of post-herpetic neuralgia. Um, it, it probably protects at least for four years. Nobody knows exactly uh, for sure because we're still experimenting with the drug, uh, with the vaccine now, um, but that is the only thing uh, that you have to be aware of. Um, the one thing that I always get questions about, and so I actually made a slide about it because I used to say it all the time, and then people would come up and they'd be like, well, that's not how I'm being detailed. So if somebody has shingles, that's a recru 